Blood, Sweat, and Fear is an independently produced true crime podcast hosted by Eve Lazarus. The series is based on her best-selling books, Blood, Sweat, and Fear, Cold Case Vancouver, and Murder by Milkshake, an astonishing true story of adultery, arson, and a charismatic killer. I'm Eve Lazarus. I'm a reporter and an author based in Vancouver, British Columbia. And the stories for this first series are from my book, Blood, Sweat and Fear. It's a story of Inspector John Vance, Vancouver's first forensic investigator. Inspector Vance is a hero of the book and the string that pulls all the true crime stories together. He was one of the first forensic scientists in North America and certainly one of the first to work inside a police department. What surprised me was how little information there was about him. He worked from 1907 to 1949, and during that time, he helped to solve some of the most sensational murders of last century. In the process of researching this book, I was able to connect with many of Vance's descendants. He died in 1964, but lucky for me, a grandson had saved several cardboard boxes full of Vance's work. There were clippings and case notes and crime scene photos, even his diary. These boxes had been sealed up for over half a century. And for a researcher, this is like winning the lottery. Vance wasn't a police officer, as his title suggested, but he started as a city analyst, and his job was to make sure that the milk, food and the water supply was safe for human consumption. Back then, forensics was in its infancy and Vance was one of the few scientists in the country who had experience working with blood and poison. The first time Vance worked with police was when he was called to the crime scene for a missing person in 1914. The woman was 31-year-old Clara Millard. She lived with her husband Charles in Vancouver's West End. The West End runs just west of downtown Vancouver and includes Stanley Park. In the early 1900s, it was where the rich wanted to live and they built large houses there. But in the years just before World War I, the middle class moved in and the wealthy fled to Shaughnessy, leaving their old mansions to become apartments and rooming houses. Charles Millard was a 41-year-old ticket agent for the Canadian Pacific Railway. He and Clara had been married for eight years. They didn't have children, but like many middle and upper class households of that time, they had a live-in Chinese houseboy. Kong Yu Chung was called Yu Kong at school, and Jack by everybody else. Jack had gone to live with the Millards in 1911 when he turned 13. His father, Yik Kong, had scraped together the $500 head tax to bring him out from China. That was a huge amount of money the equivalent of almost $12,500 today. On Tuesday 31st, 1914, Charles Millard told his wife that he'd be catching the night ferry to Victoria so that he could meet the SS Mercura, a passenger cargo ship inbound from Australia. He expected to be away either one or two nights. Charles called the house at 9 o'clock the following evening to tell Clara that he'd be home later that night. There was no answer. When he returned home less than two hours later, Clara still wasn't home, and Jack, their Chinese houseboy, had gone to bed. Charles went into the breakfast room, sat down, and took off his boots. He noticed that the table had been set for two, 
and that a portion of the carpet had been scrubbed and was still damp. He was careful not to step where it was wet. Charles phoned Clara's mother to see if his wife was there. She wasn't, but Charles figured she must have gone to stay with one of her sisters, which he often did when he was away. He went to bed. When Charles talked to Jack the next day, Jack told him that Clara had left the house around 10.30 the previous morning, but he didn't see her and she didn't tell him where she was going. She had told him to stay home from school and clean. Charles wasn't surprised. He often told people that his wife was a demon for cleaning. When Jack wasn't chopping wood, taking care of the furnace, house cleaning, cooking meals, serving meals, or washing dishes, he went to Lloyd Roberts Elementary School, which was across the street from the Millard's house, and it's still there today. Back in 1914, Jack went about his duties and prepared breakfast for Charles, and then Charles went to work. He phoned his in-laws trying to find Clara and was surprised to find that no one had heard from her. He became increasingly worried. Just 10 days before there'd been a robbery at the house, and hundreds of dollars worth of jewellery, some cash, and Clara's savings bank book had been stolen. The burglar hadn't been caught. Charles came back to the house and was surprised to find that Jack had not gone to school, but was down in the basement, tending to a roaring fire in the furnace. Jack told him it was to heat the water to wash clothes, and Charles could see a number of things hanging on the line. There was a rug from the breakfast room, a tablecloth, two doormats and some towels. Jack said he hadn't gone to school because he'd washed his trousers and didn't want to wear his old ones. Charles was annoyed by the way that Jack was following him around the house, and he sent him off to school in his old trousers. He called Clara's brother to come over and help search the house and see if they could find something that would explain where Clara had gone. The two men started in the attic, which took up the top floor of the house. Aside from Jack's room in the front, there were two other rooms used as storage and a small door at the top of the staircase that led to an unfinished crawl space under the eaves. After they looked around the attic, they went up into the crawl space to take a look around. They found a purple plume from Clara's hat and a veil that she wore when she went out. Both were hidden under a ledge. Charles called police. Detectives Tisdale and Alice arrived at the house a little after three o'clock. There were no signs of a struggle, at least nothing seemed out of place. The detectives questioned Charles and then went door to door questioning his neighbours. Margaret Wallace told them that she'd been working in her kitchen that looked out on the backyard of the Millards and noticed smoke pouring out of a pipe in their house. Later, she saw Jack walk down the alley with a parcel tucked under his arm. The detectives came back inside and looked around the breakfast room. Detective Tisdale lifted up the wet carpet and found thick felt paper, which was also wet and stained. Jack was summoned and he told the police that Clara had spilled a cocoa and that he tried to clean it up. The detectives thought it looked more like blood. They called their boss Inspector John Jackson. Jackson and Deputy Chief William McRae arrived at the house a little before eight o'clock that night. Jackson stayed to question Jack, and McRae decided to do a more thorough search of the attic. He found a pair of gloves between the eaves, and a little further along, a coat, a skirt rolled around a hat, shoes, and a silver purse with the initials C.M. McRae asked Charles how Jack got along with Clara. 
Charles told him that he was a model houseboy until recently when he started going to Chinatown on weekends and sometimes stayed away until the early hours of the morning. Charles said that Jack was a good student with impressive study habits, but lately he and Clara hadn't been getting on. Clara had said Jack was rude to her and she was afraid of him. At this point, McRae wasn't sure if they were dealing with a missing person, a kidnapping or a murder. He didn't suspect Jack of having anything to do with a woman's disappearance, but he did think that Jack knew something about it and could be protecting someone who did. McRae told Charles they were taking Jack to the police station for questioning and that they would return early the next morning to do a thorough search of the house and the garden. Jack went to put on a pair of pants that were hanging in his room, but when McRae saw that they were still wet at the knees, he refused to let him. Seeing a stain on one of Jack's slippers, he asked him to take those off as well. When Jack arrived at the police station, Inspector Jackson searched him and pulled out a savings bank book from his pants pocket. Jackson checked their records and saw that it was the same numbered book that Charles Millard had reported stolen 10 days before. Deputy Chief McRae and Inspector Jackson were convinced that Jack knew more about Clara's disappearance than he was saying. In fact, Jack was saying nothing. He spoke and understood English well, but he was frightened as police hurled their questions at him. Jack had reason to be afraid. The city had a social order carved out along strict class and race lines. Vancouver was overwhelmingly white and run mostly by Scots. The city's Chinese population couldn't vote or hold office and were barred from working in professions such as law and medicine and could only enter Canada by first paying the exorbitant head taxes. The Chinese tended to stick to Chinatown, but it was viewed by outsiders as a place of immorality and sin, where gambling and prostitution thrived and where white women were corrupted by drugs. Yet this racism towards the Chinese didn't stop white families from hiring them, mostly because the Chinese worked harder and for less money than their white counterparts. For the Chinese, there was little choice. McRae decided it was time to put the uncooperative Chinese houseboy through the third degree. The inspector read Jack his rights and then they questioned the 16-year-old without a lawyer or guardian present. Jack stood with his face turned away from them, and frustrated by Jack's lack of cooperation, the police officers yelled and threatened him. It just made Jack more scared. When Inspector Jackson returned to the Millard house the next morning, police officers were already digging up the garden and the yard and searching through the garbage cans. They found several small bones in the furnace ashes. McRae ordered up the dogs. When the two bloodhounds arrived, They were taken inside and went straight to the breakfast room to sniff at the stained pieces of carpet. As the dog handler explained, the bloodhound's sense of smell was a thousand times stronger than ours. Clara Millard's scent had created a kind of smell photograph in the dog's brain and the hounds wouldn't stop until they found her. Clara's clothes were brought to the dogs. They sniffed at them and then sniffed at a chair and then at the base of the chimney. Jackson found a small bag lodged in the space behind the chimney containing two brooches and a velvet purse with $3.60. A watch and four rings were found wrapped in a piece of school drawing paper which had the initials YK for Yu Kong printed at the bottom. 
Charles confirmed that several of the items had been reported stolen in the robbery. The dogs then turned off down the wooden stairs to the basement. They sniffed at an axe, at the furnace and around the wash tubs. After a couple of trips up and down the stairs, the dogs returned to the furnace and sat. Jackson opened the door to the furnace and shook the ashes out of the grate. He took everything out and placed it in a box. After a few minutes, he dug out what looked like pieces of charred bone and bits of steel corset, buckles and garters. Deputy Chief McRae examined the floor in the basement and found cuts in the concrete. Likely, they'd been made by the axe, which, like the floor, looked exceptionally clean. Inspector Jackson dug around the base of the chimney. Using a long stick, he was able to dislodge a parcel that contained a large portion of a human skull with the flesh still attached. He also found a thigh bone wrapped up in a newspaper and mixed in with a soot at the base of the chimney. By this time, no one doubted that the remains would turn out to be the missing Clara Millard. McRae told an officer to bring John Vance, the city analyst, to the crime scene so that he could provide a chemical analysis of the materials that they'd turned up in the search. Vance arrived with a black suitcase that contained a magnifying glass, flashlight, test tubes, envelopes and tools. He took scrapings of the stains and smears from the stairs, the concrete floor in the basement and from around the furnace door and the baseboards in the breakfast room. He cut out pieces of the stained baseboard and had these and the other stained items sent back to his lab for further analysis. Back in his lab on the top floor of the East Cordova Street Police Station, Vance laid out two claw-set diamond rings, the axe, a carving knife, a piece from Jack's slipper, the piece of stained carpet, wood from the stairs and some of the baseboard from the stair landing. Vance knew that even if the carpet had been immediately immersed in water and washed with soap, it would be impossible to get rid of all the blood stains. The first step was to confirm that the stain was blood, and back in 1914, this required several tests. What remained of Clara Millard was transported to the police station and into the care of Dr George Curtis. Curtis attempted to reassemble the incinerated remains into a human frame. At the station, Charles Millard asked to be allowed in to see Jack, and while that was unusual, McRae decided to let him. Confronted with Clara's stolen bank book the police had found in his pocket, Jack admitted that he was behind the robbery on March 21st. He had planned to return everything the next day, he said, but when he found out that the Millards had called the police, he thought he'd be sent to jail, so he said nothing. Instead, he tossed his own room and reported 50 cents stolen to take suspicion away from himself. When asked why he'd robbed his employers, he told police that he was angry with the way Clara had treated him. And then after hours and hours of relentless questioning, Jack told Charles how his wife had died. The morning after Charles left for Victoria, Jack got up a little after six and went down to the basement. He lit the furnace to heat the water and went back to his room in the attic to study. Around eight, he went into the kitchen to make breakfast for Clara. He laid one place setting at the breakfast table and then he cooked toast, oatmeal porridge and made coffee. Clara came into the breakfast room and took the seat where her husband normally sat. Jack stopped dusting in the hall, came in and served her the porridge. 
They hadn't spoken up to this point as they only talked to each other when it was otherwise unavoidable. Clara looked at the porridge. She told Jack it was the wrong kind and ordered him to make another batch. Jack told her that he was anxious to get to school on time and if he remade the porridge he'd be late. They got into an argument with Clara insisting that he remake the porridge and Jack refusing. Jack braced himself. When Clara got angry, she spoke rapidly and sometimes threw things at him or hit him with a broom. And Clara was furious. She grabbed a carving knife and lunged at him, shouting that she would cut off his ear if he didn't do what she told him. She chased him into the kitchen. Jack picked up a chair and pushed it into her shoulder. This only made her angrier, and as she raised the knife, Jack hit her with the chair. The edge of the seat caught her on the side of her head and she fell down. Blood flowed from the cut. Jack sat on the landing for about 45 minutes trying to figure out what to do. He didn't call for help because he was sure that she was dead and he was just as sure that Charles would kill him when he got back from Victoria. Jack decided that since she was already dead, the best chance he had to survive was to get rid of her body and pretend that he didn't know where she was. Claire and Jack were of similar size, only about 5 feet in height and weighing a little over 100 pounds. Jack put his hands under Clara's arms, hoisted her body onto his back and carried her to the stairwell landing. There was no rail on the steep wooden stairs that led to the basement, so Jack took her in his arms and carried her the rest of the way. Her feet dragged on the steps. Jack laid her down on the cement floor. He took off a wedding ring and a smaller opal ring and hid them in a space between the chimney and the wall. Jack added a few pieces of wood to the fire that was already burning in the furnace. Taking the axe, he chopped off her arms and legs and started feeding body parts into the furnace. He wrapped up the skull and the larger bones that wouldn't burn in a copy of the Daily Province and put them in the ash can until he could get rid of them later. After he had burned most of the body, he put on fresh wood to take away the smell and he packed up some towels and clothes that were covered in her blood, put them in a box, walked down the road and threw them in the water at English Bay. The gory details of the murder, combined with news of the impending arrival of the Comagata Maru and its 376 mostly Sikh passengers, was inflaming anti-Asian panic across the province. For days, headlines such as Boatload of Hindus on its way fought for space alongside Chinese boy kills a white woman and burns body, terrified citizens who were now afraid that they'd be overrun by Asians or murdered by their own Chinese houseboys. The effect on Vancouver's Chinese population was immediate. Chinese men were stopped on the street and beaten. Chinese workers were fired from their jobs in hotels, restaurants and private homes. The Vancouver Sun wrote an editorial calling for segregation in the schools. Jack's trial started on May 18, 1914. People lined up outside the courtroom two hours before the doors opened. They crushed and jostled their way up the steps to the court in the hope of getting a seat. Jack was brought up from the police cells. He was dressed in short grey pants, collar and tie, and looked even younger than the 16-year-old boy that he was. At least he was well represented. His lawyer was Alex Henderson, a King's Counsel and former Attorney General. While the details of the trial were grisly enough, and admitting to the earlier robbery already made Jack look bad, the prosecution was going for the death penalty. 
The prosecutor argued that Jack had stabbed Clara Millard and burned her body to cover it up. Henderson argued that his client had no motive for murder. Jack, he said, was truly afraid that the woman would cut off his ear and feared for his own life when Charles found out what had happened. It was only natural, Henderson said, that Jack would want to cover up the evidence of his crime, in this case by carrying the body to the basement and burning a large portion of it in the furnace. That was a fatal inspiration, he told the jury. The gentleman, had he not destroyed those traces, had he left the body in the breakfast room and called help, would he now be on his trial for murder or for manslaughter? Dr Curtis told the court that Clara was still alive when dismembered. He was basing this, he said, on evidence that Jack had given that there was a smattering of blood when he started to cut up the body. Later, under cross-examination, the doctor admitted that a small amount of blood could still seep out of a body after it was dead. But the headlines were already written, and all anyone would remember was that Clara may have been alive when Jack started to hack up her body. The jurors were shown various exhibits, including the axe, the charred skull, and some bones with flesh still attached. Police had to lock the courtroom doors during the lunchtime break to keep the curious spectators from handling the exhibits and taking home souvenirs. When the trial wrapped up, the jury was given three choices, guilty of murder, guilty of manslaughter, or not guilty. And in spite of the graphic and sensational details of the trial, the anti-Asian sentiment of the time, the inflammatory headlines in the media, and the public's desire for a lynching, the jury believed Jack. They found him guilty of manslaughter. In sentencing Jack, the judge told the court that he believed that he should have been charged with murder and given the death penalty. He sentenced Jack to life in prison, the harshest sentence he could give with a manslaughter verdict. In the end, though, Jack served eight years and returned to China. As for John Vance, the city analyst's career would never be the same again. Thanks so much for joining me. You can read more about Inspector Vance and the sensational murder cases that he worked on in my book Blood, Sweat and Fear. There's a link to this and my other true crime books on my website, evelazarus.com.